The human animal isn't doing well in the modern world. We have become domesticated and have lost our wildness. The Human Animal Show explores a return to a state of wild health, our original, authentic human animal. And now your hosts, Frank Forensich and Dr. Rodney King. Hey, Denise. Hi, how are you guys? We are good. We are good. We are good. Um, just making sure that I am on silent. There we go. So <laughs> fantastic to have you with us. Finally, I've been trying to negotiate this with our schedules for, I don't know, a good couple of months. Yes. Yeah. Life got suddenly complicated on my end. <laughs> no problem. No, totally understood. So we're happy to have you. Um, you happy to just kind of jump right into this? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what myself and Frank have been doing, you know, as we've been going through these episodes and talking to people such as yourself, is we've started to kind of get a feel, the sense of where everybody's at and what the consensus is. So we've got this little positioning statement. It evolves and it has evolved over the episodes. So what I would like to do is read it to you and then get your you know how do you feel about it like do you does it resonate with you is it completely left of center do you kind of think something completely different so what i'll do is i'll read it and then you can you can tell me what you think so yeah, yeah go. starting point cool so yeah goes the challenge we confront isn't so much about an inherent flaw in the human animal as much as it is about being coerced into adapting to a prevailing dominant worldview that demands assimilation to a way of living that itself is inherently detrimental, not just for us, but for all of life on earth. Tragically, we find ourselves ensnared in a relentless cycle, coerced into embracing a lifestyle that champions unchecked greed, insatiable materialism, unfettered competition, and rampant consumerism. All the while, we sold the illusion that adhering to this dominant worldview guarantees happiness. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing. I'm guessing you're in agreement. <laughs> yes, I'm in. I'm in complete agreement. And I think you know from you know the little bit that that we've engaged with each other's work that uh, that pretty well spells out where um, the the point that I've come to in my work. I've worked in sustainability for a really long time starting out on the technical side, came from a civil engineering background, mm. environmental consulting, and, and then sustainable design, you know, biomimicry. And I kept, you know, thinking what this is, I kept peeling back the layers, like, well, this is fine, but it's not, it's not fine. And what I, you know, as an engineer, you don't talk about this in school, but I realized, okay, there's, there's, uh, protocols, principles, practices, all that, like what's missing? And it's the, uh, the paradigm. Mm. It's the, what we believe to be true about the world, how it works and our role in it. And so I came up with a, you know, very uninteresting uh, conventional paradigm versus nature's paradigm or natural paradigm. And, and that's exactly what you're talking about. This paradigm that what I, you know, when we say the real world, like that'll never work in the real world or, yeah, welcome to the real world in that awful cynical tone. That's exactly what you're talking about. And we have all convinced ourselves that in order to survive in this world, we have to ascribe to the rules of the real world. And so we, good, well-intentioned people do things that are very misaligned with our own values in order to, because we think we have to. So like you mentioned greed, and if you ask most people, um, most people who you would, you know, associate with, are, are you greedy? And of course not. But I would argue, just like you're saying, you, we believe we have to act as though we're greedy in order to function in the world. Like if you ask someone either personally or for their business, what is the revenue goal? And implicitly, it's infinity. Mm. There is no top limit. There's certainly a bottom limit. Um, and you set these like little metrics as you go, but the goal is infinity. And 
you know, really, it's like, if I said, how many chocolates do you want to eat right now? And like, would you say infinity? And like, no, that's, uh, that's disgusting. It's like, yeah, but that's your goal when it comes to money. And that, but that's not what we believe, but we are so separated because that's what we feel like we have to do. And that's a paradigm that we adopt, you know, where we go to work or we go out in the world and it's so misaligned that we, we have to detach ourselves from our value and our, what I call that our own natural paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was not just me coming up with this. It's a lot of years and particularly a group of colleagues when I lived in the UK for a while, and we formed a group called BCI, Biomimicry for Creative Innovation. And we looked at the principles of biomimicry, which were applied to the design of things um, and processes. And we said, well, we got to take it beyond that. And we looked at, well, what if we applied it to business models and organizational structures and leadership models? And so we came up with these, uh, these great concepts. Um, and then when I moved back to the States, I gave myself a mini sabbatical to take it further because we were so close. I mean, this is really good stuff, but we weren't, it wasn't complete. Mm-hmm. And it was this paradigm that was missing for me that tied it all together. And, and so in, um, in biomimicry, one of the things is you can't look to humans as for examples, because humans are so flawed. And as you're saying, that's a premise that I went along with until I'm like, wait a minute, humans, of course, are biological beings. So our natural paradigm is nature's paradigm. So the, our worldview, when we're not grappling with the real world is the same as that of a frog or a tree or an amoeba or a you know hummingbird it's exactly the same and so Mm -hmm. trying to parse that out at the paradigm level and then when you we experience this hopefully all you know all the time like when we're out for a walk when we're in love when we're doing a creative act when we're like watching the steam rise from our coffee or tea and like just enjoying that moment in the utter beauty of it. That's, that's um, our worldview. When, we, when we're in those moments, mm. that's their natural paradigm. Mm. And so what I believe is that people need to recognize exactly what you're talking about. What is, I'm calling it the conventional paradigm, recognize it in yourself, how you experience it and how you express it. And that how misaligned it is, not only with the earth and other people, but with your own values and your own sanity, you you know, you and then, and then look at notice in your natural paradigm, when you experience it, how it feels and the creativity, imagination, and wisdom that you have when you're in that state. And then intentionally put yourself in that state when dealing with the real world. Mm. And you have, so there's like triggers and then you develop tools and triggers and tools. And so you can say, okay, when I'm triggered to be greedy or fearful or individualistic, I know, okay, I don't need instead of fear, I use curiosity. Instead of greed, I have trust. Instead of individuality, I recognize systems and et cetera. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. So I, th- I was just like, as you were saying that, I thought what would be very helpful is to unpack somewhat as best as we can within the time that we have, what you are presenting as the conventional paradigm. And, you know, looking at, which I suggest everybody should get, you have a really great uh, ebook that people can get on your site, and we'll put that in the notes, uh, Realigning with Nature. And in that book, you basically identify a few elements, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing these are the ones that you feel are like the most important, right, as far as defining yeah. what we mean by a conventional paradigm. So what we have there, and uh, I, I don't know if you have it in any specific order, but basically you have scarcity, individuality, competition, (laughs) greed, (laughs) greed, resistance, and fear. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. That's it. So that's, that's from the book, right? So I thought what would be really helpful then is let's go through that. We could start wherever you want to, Yeah. but let's maybe give the listener a little bit of a definition on what you actually Mm -hmm. mean by scarcity. What do you mean by individuality? Because I guess oftentimes people look at that and exactly what we said, right? Most people wouldn't assume that they've been greedy, but when I look and I totally agree with what you wrote and I totally agree with the the elements that you put forth. And I kind of think to myself always is that any one of these taken to the extreme where it goes beyond what you really need in order to flourish will always inevitably lead 
to greed. If you think, just if you take individuality as an example, right? There's nothing wrong in having personal sovereignty, but when your individuality becomes all-encompassing and to the detriment of everything else around you and the consequences that that will bring about, that leads to greed. Same with scarcity and so forth. So maybe let's start somewhere. Where would you like to start on on your list? Yeah, it's funny that you landed on greed because... I uh, I kept thinking there's got to be a one that's the top. And I did organize it as if scarcity was the top. Mm. But um, interestingly, I was uh, I have a class relining with nature to help people do exactly what I said, recognize their own experiences, paradigms. And I and I part of that is you take on a challenge, like whatever challenge you want. And I took on my own business which is still kind of nascent. And, and I assumed that my biggest trigger would be scarcity because I, I, Oh, I need more clients. I need more money. So the opposite was, is abundance. Like what's abundant. And I realized when I went through each one of them, my, my, my problem spot was greed and not because I wanted so much money, which is what you'd think of business, but because I wanted things to happen faster than than they should so and then the other was i wanted to get results without putting in the steps needed to get those results mm. i just wanted it to happen and so the opposite of greed or the you know the the parallel is trust and i trust that if i did these steps i would get these results and if that didn't work i would trust that i would i know there's experiments and you have to find that thing mm. and the really neat thing about that and we'll, we can get back to talking about the individual ones sure. was i realized that yep i do need to do these steps um in order to get i want to affect as many people as possible and i was going to do it through like this you know selling content whatever and I'm like, I don't want to do those steps. Yep. I trust those steps have to happen. I don't want to do them. So I'm shifting my model now because I don't want to spend all my time marketing. I want to spend my time engaging with people like you and spreading the word and then learning from people like you. So I can weave it back in and put it back mm. out. We can all do that together. So that was an interesting observation. So I took my own class this summer, um, just step-by-step did it all by hand. So I would really have the experience and it was eye-opening even to me, even though I'm the one that created it, but getting back to your question. So scarcity, um, and it's not, it's easy to see in the extreme. However, we always think, well, I'm not that extreme. So I think it's actually really interesting to look at non-extreme cases. So, uh, I, I, most people would say, uh, I don't have enough time. I'm, I'm, I'm too busy. That's a really typical thing. Oh, I never have, I'm too busy. And so that's scarcity of time. So we're all virtually everyone says that, you know, and, and yet if you said, okay, if you're always too busy and you never have enough time, have you ever made it, made it to the airport on time? Well, yeah, of course. Okay, so you apparently had enough time at that time. Do you are you late for work every single day? Do you not brush your teeth because you don't have, or take a shower or not? Yeah. So you do have enough time. It's about prioritizing that time. You know, um, we don't always have control over a time, but that's different than not having enough time. Mm. You know, of course, everyone says we all have the same 24 hours a day. So it's a perception of time that's scarcity. And so the opposite is, you know, abundance. We've got, we've got a whole lifetime and what do I want? But it's your job to think about what, you know, I have lots and lots of time. How do I want to best spend that time? And if you feel like you're too busy or whatever, maybe you should reevaluate what you're doing and how you're doing it. So it's this mindset that causes stress. And once you're stressed, you're in victim mode. And once you're in victim mode, you're just, you disempower yourself. And then you, um, and then it it triggers the other, um, the other things like individuality. I got to do it all myself. Well, that's stressful. Of course, you don't have enough time to do everything yourself, you know, and then um, competition and greed. Oh, I want more time, but okay. So that there's that I said, if you had all the time in the world right now, you have no, nothing on your plate. What would you do with it? And most people would flounder. They would get bored. They, they you know what they do? 
you know, how much time do you spend on your phone? So don't tell me, you, have, you know, people talk about, I don't have time. They, then they go on and talk about all the TV shows they've watched. You have time. You are just choosing to use it in a certain way. I'm not being judgmental, but we just have to, you know, challenge the assumption that's behind, you know, that. So that's another thing with scarcity is I don't have enough money. And of course, you know, we're all addicted to affluence. So no matter how much money you have, you don't want to have less. You may not say I want more and more and more like, you know, we, we, we're told we always want more, but you don't want less. Right. And and no matter how, you know, you most of the world has far less you know money and assets than than we do. And yet we always look to people who have more, and you know, so again, we have we have plenty. Most of us have plenty, but we we're looking up at the, the higher whatever brackets. Um, and then individuality, like in, in our culture, we always praise, you know, celebrities and heroes. Um, but of course, how a celebrity cannot be a celebrity without teams and teams of people supporting them. They may have done amazing things to get there. Absolutely. But we ne none, none of us operate by ourselves and you can't be a celebrity without followers. So you know, by definition. So you'd rely on a system to be this individual. And I totally agree with you. In nature, every individual has to like take care of themselves. So they have a, a role to play. Um, but when in nature, when an individual looks after itself, has its own self-interest, it benefits the system in doing so. Whereas what we believe them to benefit ourselves something or someone has to take a hit and it's just this this um and we look at a hero as someone who sacrifices themselves for the good of others but in practice most of the people we call heroes sacrifice others for their own self you know aggrandizement and and so it's just another false construct and the opposite is systems and it's so again challenging assumption and one of the activities i have people do is um in this moment, how many systems are you completely dependent on? You know, okay, so we're using the internet and the system that created these computers and, and you know, cell service and electricity and heating and, you know, oh my God, you, it's on and on and on. Like there's, we don't, and that's on a technical side, but like breathing, you know, we outsource half of our respiratory system to the greenery out there, right? So the plants are kicking out oxygen and we take that in and we kick out CO2. We've got this system going. So, and you're, you know, people say that you're walking around in your own body. It's you're like more than half is non-human cells, all the mm -hmm. cells that are doing your digestion for you. So we can't breathe and we can't eat or digest without this system. So there's no such thing as a individual. And we don't, we give ourselves credit um, for successes when it's really been, you know, and when there's a failure, we tend to blame the system, you know, them, they wouldn't let me, it was their fault. And so just being real, real with yourself, it's like, yep, I'm an individual and I'm part of a system. And then it's so wonderful when you get into the natural paradigm side, like, oh my gosh, I am so lucky to be part of this system. I'm, you know, I'm, I was the other day, I was using the the phrase, like, instead of being alone, um, you're among. So even if you're by yourself, you know, you don't need to be lonely. You just go for a walk in the go outside and all the leaves and bugs and birds, you're just, you're among, you know? <laughs> yeah. Some, one of the classes I, um, I, I gave a while back at the end, this um, people kind of share their you know reflections and one guy's profound insight was nature has my back. And that was really neat in all the ways that that, you know, that shows up, but that's systems, that's mm -hmm. systems. Thinking. Yeah. And then, and then uh, competition, of course, if you've got scarcity and individuality, it's competition. We, the assumption that resources are, limited and there's not enough to go around. And of course, resources are limited um, for, but in nature, because of cycling and cycling and recycling, recycling, it's like there's infinity oxygen. Mm -hmm. You know, you can breathe as much as you want all day, every day, and there will always be enough. 
So you don't, even though you're consuming oxygen, it becomes part of your body and you use it as energy because it's constantly cycled and recycled. There is, it's like there's infinity, but we, in, in the human world, we take, you know, finite resources and we, or intentionally make them finite to give them more value, but nature values things that are abundant. And, and so instead of competition, we have synergies. So it's like, you know, you do this, I do this. And that, you know, the, the, some of the parts, the whole is greater than some of the parts. And, and we've all experienced that. And it's so great when we do, but we still in the, um, think, oh, in the real world, it's all about competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking, as you were saying that too, right, even just when you, the oxygen example, the fact that we're breathing out CO2, that's our way of giving back, right? Because nature needs that. And without yeah. that, nature doesn't flourish. And so we are constantly part, like you said, of the system and we are replenishing each other. And it's a much, I think it's a much more clearer, more profound way of seeing our place in the world. I mean, as we go on, right, we're looking, as we mentioned, greed already, resistance, fear. I think like the main thing for me is everything you pointed out there. These are things that have been, you know, could we say that human beings are naturally this way? Maybe you have some insight on that, but I definitely see that the dominant worldview amplifies these, right? So it amplifies it to such a degree that it becomes negative and it becomes unhealthy. And then it starts affecting the human animal on a very profound level. And that's, or we then surprised that when we look around, so many people are struggling. So many people are having problems with their mental health and their well-being because this is not the natural, I don't think it's the natural state for a human being to be present on this planet. I think the natural state is everything you said in opposition to this. Does that, does that kind of make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. And your, your statement at the beginning, I think just captured that, that, Mm. you know, often when we say we use the term human nature, we refer to negative characteristics. Well, it's just human nature to be greedy. And, um, and I struggled with that because I was trying to come up with way a simple, but kind of profound ways for people to understand this. And what's the connection between humans and nature? I'm like, well, it's human nature. But then people use that term to be negative. But this is where I'm like, that's, but just like you said, how we behave in the conventional paradigm in the real world is not our natural state. It's just, it's just we, we created this construct of the real world that is not normal for us. And, and, and the more we live in that and forget about what it's like to be in our natural state, um, the more we're going to have exactly like you said, you know, cognitive dissonance, you know, stress, uh, uh, we blame and complain a lot. And then when you think about it, if you're a thoughtful person that leads to shame, I mean, if I said, Oh, are you a complainer? You're like, no, I'm not a complainer. Really? You've been, you know, most conversations, it starts with some kind of complaining. It's like, really? You That's, and most people would not want to say I'm a, I'm in victim mode. Oh, oh poor me. But most of us are, are, are in victim mode because of being in this construct. And that leads to like, again, the shame. It's like, Oh, that's not, me, I don't even like what's coming out of my mouth. And so I, humans have evolved, you know, through all this time in the natural paradigm. Now, I'm sure some people say, no, wait a minute, there's, you know, there's scarcity and greed and fear in nature. And that's absolutely true. Um, and so there are steps here, but the first step is to recognize the conventional and the natural paradigm that you have both in your life and that this is your, your normal paradigm, the natural paradigm. But we have been entirely overtaken by this, our dominant cultural paradigm is what I'm calling the conventional paradigm. And it's not um, natural, clearly, because we have, you know, rampant mental illness, we we kill each other, uh, we, we destroy, we're, we're destroying, we very knowingly destroy the system, you know, that, that, that the systems that we depend upon, that it's not natural. That's not normal. So normal is our, um, is this natural paradigm. And so the one example between like scarcity and abundance, like a plant or an animal reproduces and grows, um, as if everything they need is abundant. 
And when something is scarce, they have strategies to deal with it, but they don't grow as if there's scarcity in competition and greed and fear and, you know, resistance. It grows with these other things and has strategies to deal with the other, as opposed to living as if everything is scarce, everything's competition, everything is individual. It does, it, it's, those are things that occur and you have strategies for them, but that is not the way of the, of the world. And so I believe human nature is the natural paradigm. Mm, I love so that. Getting what you were talking about. Yeah. Frank. Yes. Um, from my point of view, when we, we make a distinction between the natural world and modern commercial corporate approaches has to do with cybernetics and regulation and feedback because, um, the corporate model, as you said, tends to go to infinity. It wants to go to infinity. It throws off regulation whenever possible. And armies of lawyers and lobbyists trying to get rid of regulation. But in the natural world, we see regulation everywhere. And that's part of interdependence. So it seems to me that the people on the political right are completely wrong about this, that they say well, there should be no regulation on the free market. The free market left to its own devices will cure everything. I just don't see that. I mean, if we're talking about biomimicry, our modern systems should be accepting of regulation because that's what the natural world does. What do you think? Yo, absolutely. And the the thing that, like one, one good example is there's, positive feedback loops and negative feedback loops. And it's a little counterintuitive, the language. So a positive feedback loop is the more you have, the more you want. So the more something happens, the more it will happen. And nature tends to get rid of, you know, it has evolved out positive feedback loops because that that's when things spin out of control. It's like, if the more you eat, the more you want to eat, you will just, you know, Right. So negative feedback loops is the more you do something, the less that you want that thing. And that's that's self-regulation. Mm -hmm. And so nature is full of these uh, regulating feedback loops. And you get to a certain like a population might explode. It reaches them. It goes down. And it, so some of them are cyclical. Some of them are more even keel. Um, some of them take really long periods of time. Something happens, you know, really rapidly but they're all self-regulating. That's why like in biomimicry, we talk about uh, under um, life's principles, we talk about earth's operating conditions, um, which back when, when I worked at the biomimicry Institute, um, the, the life's principle kind of wound up in this, uh, like some were principles and some were conditions. And so I'm like, well, in engineering, we call them operating conditions. And so we pulled out the operating conditions. So things like the earth has um, limits and boundaries. And because of that, you can't have, you know, for you can't have infinity, there are limits. And so nature has evolved to have strategies to deal with those limits. That's why some things are really hard to see in nature. People say, well, give me an example. You can't really see it because it's, it's so embedded mm -hmm. that you don't have excesses. Now, sometimes you see it like you, like you'll see um, populations explode in nature for short periods of time, and then they collapse. But that's mm -hmm. how that particular system works. Now, sometimes it's because of human intervention that we see wacky, you know, natural, you know, cycles in, in nature. But yeah, it's entirely full of regulation at all different scales of, of space and, and time. Which is why the inverse U curve, we see it everywhere, right? The inverse U, you've got rising benefit and tipping points and then diminishing returns into yeah. pathology at the other end. Yeah. And that's all over from the deepest uh, reaches of our physiology all the way to ecosystem dynamics. The inverse U curve explains yeah. so much, not only of how things work, but how we should live our lives too. I mean, yeah. You could you got to assume an inverse U curve in everything, and that's that's a good principle for life, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And we, 
in in the biomimicry world, we talk about, well, it's not just that, but is uh, dynamic optimization. So it's not like the most or the least, it's the optimal. And it's dynamic because things are constantly changing. And so that optimum is constantly changing. So in nature, everything has ways to sense what's around it and constantly dynamically optimize. It might be dynamically optimized um, okay, for a while, I'm gonna. My skin's gonna get darker because I've been exposed to sun, you know, sunlight. And then later, I don't need that, so that goes away. But my skin might get thicker because I've been using my hands a lot. So, it's not. There's not like a best, but there's an optimal for the changing uh, conditions. And that is another example of regulation. I was thinking as 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 both of you were talking about this is how do we, is it even possible to instill a completely different paradigm? Because for me, I think to myself, well, imagine if every person, every organization, their starting point was earth first, meaning that whatever decision I make, be it personal or business, if my starting position is how will this affect the planet? Is it going to be positive or negative? Then that makes it a lot more feasible for everybody to then not feel that they're not getting what they should get, right? Because all of these things that we outlined, the greed and so forth, this is the conventional paradigm. So we need a completely different paradigm. Do you think that's even possible or is it just something that's never going to be available to us just because of how deeply ingrained this conventional paradigm is because I'll be honest, I'm not very optimistic when I, when I look at how we are and what we're doing and, you know, myself and Frank, we spoke to Peter Russell a couple of days ago. He was talking about how uh, any intelligent, technically sophisticated, uh, you know, race will inevitably become their own destruction just as a given. It's just a matter Mm -hmm. of time. So he's mm-hmm. basically saying, you know, just you just have to come to grips with the fact that at some point this whole thing is going to end. And it may mean the, the complete extinction of human beings. How do you feel about that? Well, just addressing that particular point, uh, that's a trajectory that we're on. You know, because mm. evolution, th- there have been living things on Earth for billions of years. But my what I the, the number I heard is like 99.9% of all things that have ever like species, not individuals, but species that have ever lived have gone extinct because they didn't figure out how to mm. operate within the, the rules of the game. And so we are not operating within the rules of the game. We are trying to defy it. So and we, of course we see, you know, biodiversity loss, you know, climate change, mass human suffering, even among affluent countries, you know, levels of depression and loneliness and other mental health issues. So we're on that trajectory, but it, um, but answering the first question about the paradigm shift, you know, people who do systems thinking, you know, like Danella Meadows at all, they, the, uh, the, the best thing to do is the most impactful thing to do is shift the paradigm because mm. everything else has these, you know, yeah. Um, and of course people say but that it's also the hardest, if not impossible, however, two things, what I'm calling the conventional paradigm, which is, you know, exploitative capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy, supremacy, those are human constructs. Those are not natural, right? They are, we we made those up and they're based on belief systems that we also made up. So if we made them up, we can make up something else. The other thing is that I am saying, and I, and I'm using different language than you guys, but I think we are totally mm. aligned that we need to shift to what I'm calling our natural paradigm, which is the same as nature's paradigm. And it seems like a crazy switch. Like, how do you shift a paradigm? But the beauty of it is two things. One, we already know that paradigm. It is a paradigm that we have. Like I said earlier, when you're out for a walk in the woods, you're looking at sunset, when you're joking around, you don't feel scarcity. You feel a sense of abundance and possibilities. You don't feel like it's you against the world. You feel a part of this bigger thing. Those, those things don't have any relevance in that those moments. So we know what those are and we behave in really different ways because we have a different belief system about the world, a different paradigm. So we know that and we 
behave that way in all kinds of wonderful ways. I mean, we make movies about it. We celebrate it. You know, it's like when there's a catastrophe and people like whether they donate or jump in and like much to their own risk, help someone else who they don't even know. We, that is human nature. That is how we have survived as a species mm. since we've been on earth because we operate as a system. We're social animals. We're curious. We could not have possibly gotten to where we are if we weren't curious. Can I eat that berry? You know, can what we don't have enough here. So maybe during times of drought, if we go over there, there'll be something. So it's our curiosity that's allowed us to survive. We need fear, you know, maybe I shouldn't eat this berry, but it's curiosity that has gotten us. So we have this being aware of it and the power of it is, you know, the other thing is in, in the approach that I'm teaching people is you can't say, um, it doesn't work to say, I want the earth to be a good place. So I'm going to have that in mind and everything I do, because it doesn't make sense. Well, am I going to use my phone? Like how, how does that, there, there's not a connection. There's too many steps removed. But if I say, okay, if I look at say curiosity versus fear, if I'm triggered by fear, which could be stress, worry, it comes in all these different forms. What it would look like to operate from a place of curiosity and in the moment and little tiny things you do that, you, you get value immediately. So if you have immediate benefit or value to you in the moment and you go, oh, and that's this spiral process a little bit around, then you go, oh, now I can take it in a little bit deeper way. Or I can like challenge myself a little harder in a situation where I fear is really is real and triggered, but how can I still operate from a place of curiosity? And you realize how powerful that is for you personally, for your relationships, for the work that you're doing. And then you see the possibility of like you said, you know, earth first life-centered design, you know, or life-centered, um, you know, thinking. So we have it in us. It, it, when you practice it in little ways, it brings tremendous value to you as a person in, in, in your life. And then you can start to see how that, you know, the, the more of us that do that, we can achieve these things. And, and, you know, I know you guys know that changing is not changing everyone. You really only need to change just enough and then you reach that tipping point. Um, and, and then everyone else, I mean, most of us are followers most of the time. So all you need to do is have people leading in these different things and then the, the rest will happen. So I, I see it possible. Um, and I think when people realize that their own, you know, happiness and well-being and mental health and physical health, so much better when you practice these things. That's why I feel optimistic about it. I like that because when you were saying that, I'm, I'm, the, the image that came up for me was, in essence, recalibrating your own personal paradigm. So there might exactly. be this, you yeah. know, this outside dominant worldview, you know, like it or not, we have to try to navigate it as best as we can. But what we can do is we can change our personal paradigm. Yeah. And then that personal exactly. paradigm becomes the, the, the natural paradigm, which is what you're describing. Yeah. So then my next question, which is, I think is always helpful for somebody listening to this because people often want to know, well, what are you doing, right? Like what, how, how are you applying this, right? So when we talk about natural practices, what mm -hmm. does Denise do yeah. as far as her own natural practices? Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, I'm always, when I talk about this, I'm always honest because I say, well, these are my practices, but I don't always get them right. So I make a point of saying, it's not like, well, it's, it's, I'm always right on point. But I'd love to hear from you, like, what are some of the, the natural practices that you engage in in every day to help yeah. you develop your own natural paradigm? Mm -hmm. And it, to your point, like the fact that I, I work on this all day, every day, like people have to hear me talk about it, not always when they want to, um, that it's not because I'm so good at it. It's because I am. I am just dogged about like wanting to figure it out and 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 mm. making each person in the world a better place. And so I I challenge myself. It's not because I'm good at it, because I see it and I go, ah, oh, that. And I keep keep working on it. And so I part of the the big course and the tools I've developed are um tools that's like for myself, like whether it's a 
I'm developing, well, these are prototypes of all these journals, like um, how do you practice this every day? For example, scarcity versus abundance, this whole scarcity thing. But you think about what's abundant in your life. It's like, well, you think about well, time or money, because those are the things I feel scarce. Like, well, put those aside for now, because those are huge triggers. But what is abundant? You think about beauty, joy, delight, imagination, knowledge. So the more you have, the more you will have, the more you give away, the more you get back. And then you do get this positive feedback loop. And so your need for why do I need more time? And why do I need more money? Like, what would you do with your money? Well, you try and buy beauty and joy and, you know, fun. So if you keep, for example, uh, a journal or even in your head, you look for beauty and, and like, I've got this paint splotch on the back of my phone from something, but the shape of that, you just look at it, you go, that's really cool. You know, whether it's something teeny tiny and you see beauty in it, you've got birds outside the window and just watching them, you know, it gives me delight. And if I have that and I use my imagination, I love seeking knowledge. So reading and listening to, you know, people like you, and I, I get so excited and it sparks my imagination. Then I don't feel like I need to buy so much stuff. I don't care if I get, you know, likes on my vacation photos because I don't need that. I just have that being. So you can develop that every day and be, and you just shift how, how you are present in the world. And then these other things are less triggering. And the other things like um, fear, you know, we, we, we have all these stresses in our lives. But the, the correlated to that is curiosity. So then you get the, the trick is when you, you know what your triggers are. And when you see that trigger, feel that trigger, you go, okay, which one is it for me? And you kind of go around, you go, okay, I think it's fear. Okay, so it's curiosity. And then you just say, well, I wonder, I wonder if it's like, I'm going to miss my plane. And then, blah, 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 blah. you know, you get, it's like, well, I wonder if I miss my plane, if there's something cool that I could do with this layover or this delay, or, you know, that, that means I'll have time to talk to my son who I've missed for the past three days because we've been not coordinating our schedules or, or I wonder if, you know, so, and it just, you feel this lightness and world of possibilities, instead of feeling like, again, victim mode, the world's against me with a plane and they, and blah, you just, you can turn it around and then you realize this is the person I want to be, I don't want to be the complainer, worrier, angry person. And, you know, a lot of environmentalists and social, you know, um, activists end up being that way. They're angry, you know, justifiably, but that is not going to, they're not going to be their, their best self. They're not going to bring others, others in. So there's a whole bunch of little practices like that. And then, and then, um, challenge you're challenging yourself more deeply like i said i after i created wild hazel my intent was to make all this content and then get enough like on-demand stuff and passive stuff and then cohorts and whatever to kind of get it out there and then do that to do you know bigger things but i realized you know the greed to trust thing that i that's all about marketing and i don't want to do that so like i would way rather because I've been approaching as an individual and like, I need to be the system. So reaching out to more and more people, figuring out how can I work with other people to really make this happen, make the shift happen in the world. And I've got these set of tools and frameworks that I've developed and they've got theirs and how can we put that together? So it's, it's, you know, day-to-day -day stuff. It's bigger stuff, challenging assumption that a business means individuality, scarcity, competition, you know, so challenge the assumptions and then, and then figure out, put them into action. And, and another cool thing is it, this is a little bit like biomimicry where like this summer I had a series of workshops called think like nature. So one was how to be less busy by thinking like nature, how to be less stressed by thinking like nature and how to be, um, happy with less by thinking like nature. We literally looked at say, um, uh, a polar bear and or, you know, actually it was, a, it was like a grizzly bear and how do they deal with stress? You know, and at first you're like, what, how, what does that have to do with me? And you start looking at the strategies that they use, say, well, how might I use that strategy? Like, oh my gosh, you know, and I, and a friend of mine, had this international flights they had planned for years, you know, to go on this big trip. And 
the flights were all messed up and they couldn't coordinate with their family, whatever. And she normally gets really stressed about travel. And she's like, I remember the kelp and it's both really goes with the flow, but it has this root system and it has this resilient toughness to its, you know, the material. And she'd like use those strategies in the moment. And she was calm and, and curiously, she and her family managed to get these flights whenever that others did it because she just had that in her mind. So it's in the moment, it's long-term, but the more you do it, the more you go, Oh, I know this. And you tap into your, you know, your natural mm. wisdom that you've developed over the years, but we just, we're, we're so reactionary um, that we don't tap into our wisdom or, or develop it over yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. Frank. Yo, um, you mentioned activism, and I'm part of the activist community. We have a lot of conversations about strategies and tactics and attitudes. And I'm just wondering if you have an opinion on that. Is there a natural activism? Is there, could there be biomimicry in activism itself? I'm sure you've thought about this. Yeah, well, I, you know, I haven't thought about it specifically with activism, but the, the, the thing about biomimicry, there's a there's a approach. It's called the design spiral, and it's a design process with the bits added to allow you to tap into nature's strategies. And I um, and this guy Carl Hastrich was early. He's the one that developed the design spiral many years ago, and he's a designer. And he said, "Well, if you if you this is how you add." getting strategies from nature and you put it in a spiral because all of nature's processes are spirals and you're continuing learning. So it was just a brilliant tool. And I, and I love that. But the first step in that is if you have a challenge, you identify the functions that you're trying to perform. A lot of people think they know what they want and they go for that, but they don't take the step to say, is that really what you want to do? And like, well, what do you mean? And an example would be um, in a building, how can I make a more efficient HVAC system that's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning? And instead of saying, well, that's, that's what you want to design, HVAC system, but what do you want this design to do? Well, obviously, I want it to heat and cool. I want to keep fresh air. Um, I want to be able to control where air does and doesn't go. And you, know, all, you start listing all these functions. And then you say, okay, how does nature perform those functions? And well, nature doesn't have HVAC systems, right? So it's like, well, it has a structure that encourages airflow. It takes heat from the sun and, you know, maybe stores it in the ground. And so then, and then it gets, you get the heat back from the ground at night and natural convection. And so if you use biomimicry, you might end up with a building that doesn't have an HVAC system or has a tiny HVAC system compared to, you know, an asked it in a, um, in a different way. So like with activism, what are you, what functions, you might think you're trying to change minds, but is that really what you want to do? Or are you trying to change regulations? Like, but what are you really trying to do? Well, for example, the proximal goal here would be to stop the production of new fossil fuels. I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's the most urgent priority on the planet right now. So what would nature do for that? Yeah. Uh, nature could be pretty brutal and pretty violent, um, but we don't have that option because that's going to be chaos. Yeah. So, well, I mean, fossil fuels are brutal and violent, you know, so we that that already exists but if you say what are you trying to do like if you say stop the burning of fossil fuel or why do you want to do that well because um it's causing climate change and localized environmental destruction and the dependence on fossil fuels creating this whole society like cars and roads and whatever that causes further and then we isolate human beings because we're putting cars and so you start to look at all those things look well how might we accomplish those things that fossil fuel allows us to do without using fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like, well, then why are we using, why do we have transportation? Why do we have cars? And so you, you instead of trying to stop the bad, sometimes solve what you think the problem is, you, you, you design, you imagine a world in which that problem doesn't exist and you work to create that. And so the problem goes away. 
Well, you might say that nature is really adept at creating workarounds. Here's a resistance. Here's a problem. Well, we could just go around it. And that might be. Right. Yeah. Because nature doesn't, I mean, you see, and we highlight fighting, you know, and competition in nature, you see on nature shows out, but you know, I've challenged people over and over again to go for a walk. And I've done this in Africa. So like in the wilds, you look for an example of like dog eat dog, you know, red of tooth and nail. And it's either you've never seen it or it's so momentary you know, like you see the two birds like clashing at the at the bird feeder for a moment, but they're like, OK, two of us can't be here at the same time. One of us is going to fly away and I'll wait till you're done or whatever it is. But nature, you know, fighting in in nature is so expensive. You know, both get damaged, you know, even if there may be no both losers or a loser and, and then a bigger loser. So it's not a it's not a primary strategy in nature. Like you said, there's, there's workarounds, there's, um, okay, if it's not here, I'll go over here. And it, it sorts itself out so that because resources are limited, you, you find the optimal distribution. And so you have a lot in one place and not so much somewhere else because of that, the localized conditions. So it was a profound thing for me coming from the world of engineering, which is all about problem solving, that you spend a lot of time understanding the problem, gathering your facts, you come up with a solution pathway, you execute it and you iterate and you end up with a solution. But what I realized was like, A, nature doesn't do that. And B, when you do that, your solution is in the problem space. It validates the existing existence of the problem. And that's why I started to hang out with designers. It's like, okay, it's not denying that the problem exists, but you need to create a world in which imagine and then use your tools to create a world in which that problem doesn't exist. So we can't say no to fossil fuels until we have imagined and facilitated and designed and created a world in which fossil fuels are not desirable. Mm. And so that's why you, if you fight against something without having a solution, it's just going to squish and squeeze and go somewhere else, or it's going to, you know, they keep you, they, the bad guys keep environmental fight and all of us fighting the wrong fights and then fighting each other. You know, it's like, Yeah, I was thinking too, Denise, just to your point about, you know, in nature, we always see the tooth and nail, right? We always see the predators. But what Mm -hmm. often doesn't get discussed or put on the table is that, yes, there there may be that in nature, but those predators never take more than they need in order to flourish. So it's it's not like, you know, a, a group of lions in Africa go out and kill 20 zebra just because. I mean, they're only yeah. going to take what they need in order to, to, to flourish. And I think that's also a big point is that what I'm trying to do, and at least in my own life, is saying, okay, what do I actually need to flourish? Mm-hmm. And question myself, like if I, if I bring this into my life, is it just because I want it or is it because I actually genuinely need it in order to flourish? And if I feel that it's not the latter, then I decide not to do it. And I think... Yeah. I think one of the solutions to a lot of the problems we have is we all have to learn, especially in the modern world, to consume less. Yeah. And again, asking the question, um, why am I consuming and what would my life look like? What would an amazing, beautiful life look like where I consumed an appropriate amount? Mm. Instead of saying I need to consume less because that's a that's a suffering model and sure. that you can try it for a while and that's why we fail. But if you say, what would my our world look like that I consume less? And I gave the example earlier of if you have a daily practice of looking for beauty, you know, and then it's the more you look for it, the more you find it. And the more you find it, you know, you tell other people and they're like, Oh my gosh, yeah, I see that too. And, and instead of talking about, you know, the, whatever your new shoes you got or whatever (laughs) your consumer issue is, um, you know, you, you don't, you find you don't want to consume because again, every time you, you, there's a cost involved to you, you can do it for a while, you know, just through discipline and whatever, but, um, but 
imagining your life where you didn't feel the need to consume. If that's one thing. Another interesting thing is a lot of us would would say we're values driven. You know, your work clearly is, you know, values driven. But I think most people, if you ask them to articulate their values, what you hear them say is either their political values or mm. religious values or some vague, unactionable language. And then, if, but even if you got people to you know list their values, say, how do you spend your time, energy, and focus? Like actually track it. And it's like, whew, you know, people say, oh, I value family. But you spend, you know, how much time do you spend on this? It has nothing to do with family. You, oh, I'm working for my family. Really? You know, earning $50,000 more a year. How is that? Your kid doesn't care how nice your car is. They play with a cardboard box as long as you're playing with them, you know? So we have these false, we, we, we kid ourselves into thinking that we a understand what our values are and B that we live in alignment with them. Mm -hmm. But the third thing is, I always do that AB three, uh, that, um, that, uh, um, oh, that this, the real world, this construct that we feel we have to adhere to does not allow us to live, um, in alignment with our values. And that is to me, a huge driving force that I believe every human being has a right to live with integrity, but it is impossible to live with integrity. Um, and it's impossible to have well-being if you adhere to the, the paradigm of the real world. And that sounds super negative. However, it is entirely possible to have well-being if you shift to your own natural paradigm, which exists in every single one of us. It's just a matter of like, oh, right. That is me. I do do this. So that's why I have, you know, great hope for this. Mm. I was, uh, when we were talking to Peter Russell, I kind of made this comment. I said, this is kind of my tactic these days. Whatever the dominant worldview says I should do in order to be happy, successful, and so forth, I just do the opposite. <laughs> That's kind of my strategy. Yeah. And like most of the time, it works out really great. Yeah. But my, my final question, Denise, just as we come to the top of the hour, and I'm, I'm not sure if you've thought of this question. And the only reason I'm, I'm putting this to you, because I feel in, in some way we kindred spirits, we, we're all in the same space. And as much as we talk about these things, like it or not, we, we have to pay the bills, right? And, uh, you know, coming back to, you know, simplifying my life and stuff like that, I've tried as best as I possibly can to not have to make the kind of money that I used to make, if that makes sense. I've kind of tried to really simplify my life and say, okay, you know, what do I really need? But at the end of the day, we have to make a living. And that's unfortunate because I would do what I do if, I, you know, if there was an opportunity and I didn't have to worry about the money side of things, I would mm -hmm. do it anyway. I'd want to do it because I'm that passionate about it. But I get this question from some people often in this space. They say, you know, all these ideas are great, but it's really difficult making a living doing this. Have you? I'm sure you've thought of this because we're all in the same space. I mean, you kind of mm. hinted to it already. Um, what do you think are some of the solutions that people could apply? If they are on this kind of road to making a change, realizing that they're going up against the dominant worldview, they're coming from a position that oftentimes is not going to be something that is seen as credible or it's just completely ignored, but you're trying to get in there. You're trying to get people to understand that, you know, you want to make a change and there's a different way to show up, but you still need mm -hmm. to pay the bills. How do we mm -hmm. balance? How do we balance that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is the trigger, right? When I talk mm -hmm. about the conventional trigger and then, then, so we, we all have these different smaller triggers and then that's like mm -hmm. the big one. How do I pay the bills? Cause you know, and then, you know, if I, you kept going because that's how it is in the real world. Mm -hmm. Right. So that is, I, we live in the conventional paradigm and I don't have a choice. I don't have a, so there's, there's two, two things that one, again, is like the challenging your assumption people who say, um, I have to pay the bills. Uh, I, most of them are not at that level of, I, I'm not going to eat today. If I don't have this job, we are most people who are having the, you know, making change in the world and, and affecting the world have plenty of money. They are not at that point. And we're not talking about uh, all the stuff we're talking about is not 
I mean, it, it is for everyone for sure, but it's different. So people who are um, really just, you know, struggling at that level, that that's a different thing. Most of us who say I got to pay the bills, we have plenty and we're not honest with ourselves about what we can live with. And there's a book that came out years and years ago and I, I rebought it because I know I gave my original away called Your Money or Your Life. And they make you, this is where I came up with this thing about the values in your energy that that's from them, that they, they make you look at your values. They make it, they make you do it over and over and over again. And then how you spend your time and energy and money mm-hmm. and looking at money as your life energy. And like, and like, do, can you live with less and actually be happier? And can you reduce your, so you can reduce your income and you can use it more wisely so that that's in the much better balance. So that's one thing. Be honest with yourself about, oh, I can't pay the bills. Like, well, what bills are you paying? Like, how much are you paying for internet? I mean, I'm just not, I'm not being judgmental, but we spend our money on things that are like, you know, you could do without that. But the other and more important is like, not that I have an answer to that, but if you, if you come at that question from your natural paradigm, you're asking that question squarely from within your um, expressing and experiencing the conventional paradigm. Mm. And I do it too. So I am not at all being mm. judgmental. That is what mm. we do. So if you can figure out how to place yourself in those, you know, and again, I've got processes for this, you know, to get yourself totally in your natural paradigm and ask that same question. And the answers will be really different because your view of the world, how it works and your role in it will be different. And you have to build up like the triggers and tools over time. It's like, oh yeah, I don't need to, you know, watch that, whatever I pay for on the internet, because I'm going to just, you know, watch the sunrise or enjoy the the color of the red pepper when I'm cutting it up. You know, there's just, that is, you know, so there's, but you have to discover that for, for yourself from that natural paradigm. And the more of us can operate from there. And if we had discussions like, well, how, you know, here's my trigger. I don't know what to do with this. So I'm like, oh, well, here's how I do it. Oh mm-hmm. gosh. Right. But I think when you place yourself in your natural paradigm, you, that the answer would be really different, mm-hmm. what that means to you. And yeah. that's where I feel like the, the, that that's my work in the world right now is we would ask the questions differently. And then the whole different set of answers, of course, would, would appear. No, I love that. That's fantastic. Anyway, just as before I let you go, um, I replied to your LinkedIn. You were asking me if I knew about it. I saw it. that. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I haven't looked oh, at it yet. Yeah, no problem. So, you know, what I, what I noted there was it's really, I think it would be very, uh, very helpful if you looked at uh, Ryan Lumber's work. I'll We've actually that. had an episode with him, so maybe if you if you go to the okay. podcast and you go back, you'll see uh, Ryan Lumba, and we we talked about nature connectedness, the pathways to nature. It was a really good episode, right, Frank? With Ryan, yeah, it was really good. So maybe have a look at that, and uh, yeah, definitely have a look at his work because uh, sadly he doesn't get cited in the recognition that he deserves. But mm. uh, he's the one that came up with that originally. It was his PhD Me. thesis. Wow. And, you know, this is what's been, like I said earlier, makes me so optimistic as I, I've been putting out LinkedIn posts, you know, every week for, you know, I don't know, since January, I guess, in, mm. until the past couple of weeks because of family issues. But um, the the responses I get and even looking at, you know, people, you know, connect on LinkedIn and looking what they how they put their job title, like, oh, my gosh, there's so many people working in this space. Like I am Mm. so not alone and it's so heartening, like you guys doing this and someone else from a really different angle, but it's the same basic thing. I think we all know this. I have framing and language for it. And I just like happy to give that up to help support like the, the concept. So it's really, we all know this and we all want this and more and more people are doing exactly what you're doing. I'm going to just podcast you or you're your thesis work and yeah Yeah, so cool no i agree 100 absolutely well anyway that was fantastic so we'll we'll let you go and we'll let you know when it's out the next couple of weeks and then yeah thank you and thank you for your patience with oh no problem yeah and then we'll just keep chatting on linkedin as well so that's cool i love what i love reading all your your posts which i do okay well thanks you guys thanks for sharing thanks denise
Cheers. Goodbye. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I like, I definitely like her work. And, and you know, if you look at what she's talking about, writing about, obviously there's only so much you can do in an hour, right? But right. pretty much everything we think and everything we believe and every, in the direction that we're going, she's, she's saying the exact same thing, which is, which is great. And like she said, that is true, right? I am seeing that there are a lot more people coming about in this space from their different perspectives and, you know, they have different approaches, maybe different terminology. But if you look deep down, we're all talking about the same thing, which is great. Hey, Dr. King here. Thank you for joining myself and Frank on an exploration in improving the health of the human animal. To find out more about our work, you can visit Frank at exuberantanimal.com. For coaching with me, gear, and to find out more about the Human Animal Project, as well as my retreats, go to drrodneyking.com. Until next time, be wild, be free.